0: It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. The Peter Schiff Show. Well, I am rushing to get this podcast finished before the beginning of Yom Kippur. Want to uh, wish all of my Jewish listeners again happy holidays and Have an easy fast. This is also the last day of the quarter. The third quarter came to a close. S&P 500, NASDAQ at record highs. Not sure what made the Dow miss an all-time record. It was very close, but no cigar. But the other broader measures did hit record highs to close out the quarter. In fact, Donald Trump was tweeting about the record highs in the stock market. Earlier this morning, of course, when we were having record highs under Obama, it was a bubble and it didn't matter, but now that it's his bubble, it's now a bull market and it simply shows what a great job he's doing as president. But of course, U.S. stock markets were overshadowed by international markets, thanks in large part to the weakness in the U.S. dollar. The dollar did recover some of its losses in this week, this closing week of the quarter. Uh, I believe, again, a bit of a dead cat bounce. I think the dollar is probably going to have its weakest quarter of the year in the fourth quarter. So we'll see if I'm right on that. But even with a little bit of a bounce, dollar index back up to, I think, 93, maybe right on the money at 93 or at 9307. Uh, The low, I think, was closer to 91, but not quite. But despite that, foreign markets still well outperformed the U.S. stock market in the third quarter and did gold stocks. Uh, If you bought gold stocks and you own gold stocks, they still did better uh, than the S&P in the third quarter. But I think that's really going to uh, improve or the divergence between gold stocks and the S&P, I think, is going to accelerate In the fourth quarter, obviously 1300, not really the breakout. I mean, gold got to 1300, actually got all the way up to 1350 before turning back. And it's now even back below uh, 1300. It was off another few bucks today. uh, So I think maybe 1300 wasn't the key level. It's probably 1350, maybe a little bit higher uh, before we really get the breakout. I think we're about 1280 right now. Based on the losses, I think gold was down about seven bucks today. More bad economic news out on the day. You know, the big number was personal income and spending. It was relatively what they were looking for, except they did revise down July. July's personal income was originally reported as up 0.4, and they revised it to up 0.3. So uh, weaker than they had originally reported. Uh, For August, it was up 0.2. And uh, the consumer spending was up 0.1. Last month's up 0.3 was unrevised, but this month met expectations of up 0.1. And this is, these are low numbers. And this is August. This is before the hurricanes. The hurricanes hit in September, so the numbers could be even weaker in the month of September. Remember, you know, the GDP for the third quarter, I think the Atlanta Fed is around 2.3, uh, which is the forecast. They did revise up. Their number for Q2, the final revision, had it up at 3.1. And, you know, President Trump is really taking credit for this 3% number as if it's the entire year. In fact, even one of my own clients, you know, again, I have to keep on talking to my clients to try to keep them, uh, you know, from changing uh, strategies. And one of them was trying to tell me how good the economy was because the economy is growing at 3%. And that's something that President Obama was never able to do during his entire eight years. And, you know, this is showing you how effective this uh, PR campaign is from the Trump White House on this 3% number. What Barack Obama never achieved during his eight years as president was 3% growth for an entire year. There were plenty of quarters under Obama where we had over 3%. We had quarters where we had over 4%. But Obama never sustained 3% for an entire year. And neither has Trump. But because he keeps talking about this 3% GDP as if this is some great achievement, people actually think that the economy is growing at 3%. We just have one quarter. The first quarter was well below 3%. The, second, the third quarter is also going to be well below. Just because we got the 3.1 for one quarter does not mean that you know this is a game changer. It doesn't mean that President Trump has now accomplished something that President Obama didn't do over eight years. It's just not true. Yet one of my own clients uh, believed this. So it shows you the kind of stuff I'm, I'm working with here when it comes to keeping people Uh, you know, on course and recognizing what's been going on. In fact, you know, I had a conversation with another client who transferred out. Unfortunately, I thought I was going to save the guy and he ended up transferring out anyway. He was uh, in my RAP program. He had a couple of uh, accounts and he was transferring to an, an alternative money manager. But the other money manager what he told my client is he said look you know this stuff that you got with euro pacific this is way too risky right you got to get out of this stuff this is this is, this is too risky for you you got to do something safer like buy the us stock market right so apparently what i'm doing investing in foreign countries is very speculative but buying the us stock market at a record high is much safer and again this is all about perspective it's about mainstream investors just not understanding what's risky and what's less risky. Because in my mind, the U.S. stock market is far riskier than any of the markets I'm involved in. The U.S. dollar is far riskier than any of the currencies that I'm investing in. The U.S. bond market is a much riskier bond market than the foreign bonds that I'm purchasing. It's all a matter of perspective. It's just that U.S. advisors have been trained to believe that everything foreign is risky And investing in America is safe, is conservative. But if America is broke, right, if America is mired in debt, if we've got asset bubbles, right, if our economy is all screwed up, how can investing in that economy be safe, right? If the dollar is on the verge of collapse, how can buying dollar-denominated bonds be safe? What I think I'm investing in are the safe havens. Now, sure, if you have a limited sense of risk, you know, if you don't mind losing all your purchasing power, See, if you think that safety means preserving the number of dollars you have, but you don't care what, if anything, you can buy with those dollars, yeah, then U.S. bonds are safe because you're probably not going to lose your dollars. Uh, The U.S. government will probably not default, but they're not going to pay you back anywhere near the purchasing power that you loaned. You're going to take a huge haircut in terms of what you can actually buy with the dollars that you have left. I would rather get out of the dollar now and own currencies that I have more confidence their central bank is not going to have to crank them off the printing presses and that I'm actually going to get my purchasing power. Now, in the process, I take some exchange rate risk, sure. But that is, I think, better than taking dollar risk, taking purchasing power risk in the dollar. But most uh, traditional advisors that work with mainstream firms have no clue. So whenever they see a stock in a foreign country, even if it's a utility, even if it's a telecom stock, even if it's a real estate trust, in a solid country, right? Whether it's Switzerland, whether it's Singapore, whether it's New Zealand, good solid countries, they're going to say, "Oh, that's very risky. This is a very risky stock. Here, let me put you in a portfolio of Nasdaq stocks and you know, blue, you know, the S&P 500 and, and and U.S. bonds. See that? That's safe, right? To me, that is extremely risky. But I've got all my clients constantly being told by their other advisors, that what we're doing is very, very risky and what they're doing is safe. When the reality is, I believe it's the opposite. I believe that what the traditional advisors are doing is extremely risky. They just don't perceive the nature of these risks. And that what I'm doing, even though it has risks, I think overall is actually a more conservative strategy if you're trying to conserve your purchasing power. Because there's nothing that you can do that doesn't contain risk. You just have to decide for yourself which risks you think are most important and which risks do you want to try to guard against. But when you guard against one risk, you're obviously exposing yourself to another. But people, I think, in general are undercalculating the significance of the risk to the U.S. market and to the U.S. dollar, and they are overestimating what the risks are when you invest outside of the U.S., trying to uh, protect yourself or hedge yourself against the domestic risks hey i wanted to go back though to the comments i made about the tax uh, the tax cuts because there's a few things that i left out of uh, the podcast that i just did on the pros and cons of the uh, the proposal and i think first of all there are a few more pros of the proposal not that there's really any real depth or substance it's really just an outline so it's even hard to know exactly what what they're proposing but The idea that U.S. corporations, if they earn money abroad, can repatriate those earnings without paying a U.S. tax on top of the foreign tax that they've already paid, that is a positive. It's not necessarily meaning that you can bring it back tax-free if you earned your income in a tax haven. I think I read that there's going to be some kind of minimum tax that you would have to pay so that if you paid no tax on your foreign earnings, there would be some tax that you would pay to bring those earnings back. But it's going to be significantly less than what is, exists under today's code. And of course, if they do succeed in bringing the corporate rate down from 35 to 25, and they do make it easier uh, to repatriate earnings from your offshore subsidiaries, that will reduce the big, one of the big disadvantages of being a U.S. corporation. And it will slow down on the inversions and the, the, you know, the number of U.S. companies that do want to move offshore. To avoid these high taxes now, of course, it doesn't get you out from under the higher regulatory burden that a lot of US companies face operating here But it does level the playing field somewhat when it comes to taxation And by the way, you know, there are a lot of people and I hear this all the time who think oh Peter You know the dollar is gonna have this big rally because as soon as all these foreign companies can repatriate all this profits, Right. It's going to mean the dollar is gonna go up. No, it's not because all these foreign profits are already in dollars the vast majority of u.s companies that have profits from their foreign subsidiaries have already invested those profits in u.s treasuries they're already in dollars or maybe they're in other u.s dollar diamond instruments in fact some of that money is in u.s banks because they're u.s bank accounts of their offshore subsidiaries so the money can already be in the united states in a U.S. financial institution, it's just in the name of their foreign subsidiary, and therefore that money is not there to be used to pay dividends or to fund stock share buybacks or you know to give raises to their workers, but it could still be in the country. So there isn't going to be this big wave of dollar buying if people uh, repatriate. It's simply going to move dollars out of the accounts of foreign subsidiaries and move them into the account of the domestic parent, but the effect on the dollar will be will be zero. The dollar is still going to go down for other reasons, but I want to you know again get back to the tax cuts. What I think is going to be the biggest problem here is the way Trump has been selling this thing, and you know again I mean I don't know who's advising him or if he's just doing this off the cuff, but you know. I was watching him in a press conference and he says, this tax cut, it's no way going to benefit me, right? No, this isn't going to benefit me at all. I've got nothing to gain from this. I, I could tell you that or that's the truth. He goes out of his way to reassure everybody that he will not benefit from this tax cut when that is obviously not true. It's obviously a lie. The president is going out of his way for no reason to pretend that this tax cut that he is proposing will not benefit wealthy people in general, and specifically, it will not benefit him, which is ridiculous. First of all, why do you have to pretend that income tax cuts won't benefit the rich? I mean, the rich pay the majority of the income tax. I mean, the rich have the majority of the income. So if you're taxing income, obviously rich people have more income and especially when you have this progressive tax system and I don't even like the word because progressive makes it sound like it's good I don't like the fact that we we have tax rates that are going up as incomes are going up but the fact is as you earn more money you're in a higher tax bracket so higher income people not only have more income but the income that they have is subject to a higher rate of tax so if you are going to cut the income tax obviously wealthy people are going to benefit from those cuts disproportionate to the middle class or the poor because they're paying much higher taxes disproportionate to the middle class or the poor. So how could you say, we're going to cut income taxes, but we're not going to benefit the people who actually pay the income tax? So Trump should say, of course, we are going to benefit wealthy people when we cut the income tax. But you know what? We want economic growth. And where does economic growth come from? It comes from savings and capital investments. It comes from business formation. It comes from more hiring. And how are we going to get that? If we lower the taxes on the upper income earners, the entrepreneurs, the businessmen, then they're going to have more money to invest in growing their businesses, increasing output, providing jobs. That's where the growth comes from, from the tax cuts. So if you want tax cuts that generate economic growth, then you're going to have to cut income taxes on the people that drive the growth. I mean, if you just cut the income taxes for the middle class, yes, they'll have a little extra money to spend, but that spending is not going to drive economic growth. It's just going to result in more inflation, unless, of course, you offset it by cuts of government spending. But they're not doing that. They're not cutting any government spending, which is one of the reasons that you're not going to get any growth anyway, because the way to grow the economy is to reduce taxes on the job creators, the wealth producers, the savers, and the investors, and then cut government spending. You know, and of course, you know, I keep hearing Donald Trump saying, "Oh, these tax cuts are for the middle class. They're the ones that deserve the tax cuts." I mean, wh- why doesn't everybody deserve to keep more of their money? I don't think the middle class are any more deserving than the rich, but obviously the middle class are in more dire straits because I think the middle class has suffered more from bad fiscal policy and bad monetary policy, so they're struggling more. But if you want to uh, remove that burden, you have to make government smaller. You have to reduce the amount of money that government spends. You have to reduce the resources that the government is extracting from the economy. So that then you can relieve the middle class of having to pay for it. But none of this is happening. We're talking about more government. And then we're pretending we're going to make it easier for the middle class uh, to pay for an even bigger government. They're going to pay for it with debt. They're going to pay for it with inflation. But the problem that I want to get at with the president, because he's talking about how the tax cuts will not benefit the rich or him, and he's obviously wrong. He's obviously lying. It is going to make it so much harder to pass the proposal anywhere near its current form. And now since he has basically staked out the position, we don't want to benefit the rich. I don't want to benefit myself. Then the plan is going to have to be changed to meet that rhetoric, right? Which means we're not going to be able to lower the top rate from 39.6 to 35 because that would benefit the president. You know, getting rid of the estate tax, of course, how can... How can President Trump say that eliminating the estate tax, which basically takes, what, half of your estate? The guy's got billions of dollars. How can he say that eliminating the estate tax will not benefit him? Now, maybe you say, well, it doesn't benefit me. It benefits my children. Well, that's a benefit to him. If it benefits his children and his grandchildren, it's a benefit to him. right? How can he say he doesn't benefit from the elimination, not just a reduction in the estate tax, the complete abolition of the estate tax, which is an enormous tax on his estate and on the estate that his children are going to inherit. So he looks ridiculous when he comes out and says that he's not going to benefit. Trust me, believe me, I'm not going to benefit. I mean, he's lying. Why lie? Why go out of your way to lie? Just say, yes, I'm going to benefit. Yes, I benefit. That's not why I'm doing it. But yes, I benefit from this. So does everybody else who has an estate that they want to leave to their children and grandchildren because the tax is wrong and it's about time we got rid of it. He has to stand up for the principal instead of pretending that he doesn't benefit. The same thing with this reduction in the top rate for pass-through income from 39.6 all the way down to 25. That's like a 37% reduction in the tax on pass-through income. Almost all the income that Trump earns is pass-through. That's a huge tax cut for Trump for the Trump organization. Now, of course, now that he's said that it doesn't benefit him, he's going to have to figure out how to make sure that nobody can actually qualify for that 25% rate, which, of course, is going to complicate the hell out of his effort to simplify the tax code, which is pretty much going to nullify everything they're trying to do. So I think Trump has put himself into a box, and I think the Democrats are going to be able to hold his feet to the fire and say, okay, you said that this is all about the middle class. You want a tax cut that doesn't benefit the rich. So let's come up with a tax cut that doesn't benefit the rich. And, you know, that's pretty hard to do since the rich pay all the taxes. So the only thing you could do then would be to find a way to tweak the lower brackets lower and then, you know, raise the upper brackets higher that the lower income or middle income people are not subjected to. So if we find a way to make the rich who are already paying a disproportionately high percentage of the tax if we get them to pay an even higher percentage and then we get the middle class or the poor who are already paying a small percentage, if we reduce their share and we've already got 44 percent of americans pay no income taxes at all who have jobs right they pay the payroll tax but they pay zero income tax i mean maybe we'll get it to the point where we get 55 percent of americans paying zero income tax i mean the problem with having an income tax that is heavily progressive is the people at the bottom end of the income strata, they have no incentive to impose tax hikes, right? If the tax hikes are going to fall on somebody else but not them, then you have no opposition, right? You always can find people willing to tax their neighbor so long as the tax doesn't fall on themselves. So the more, quote-unquote, progressive they make the income tax, the more damage it does and the easier it is for some future administration to, to, to raise taxes because the people that actually have to pay the higher taxes are are, are, few, in, are, are few in number compared to the people who aren't going to pay. And so the people who pay the tax are going to get outvoted by the people who don't. So this is the, the, um, the, the path that we're now going down where the president trying to specifically say this is not about the rich, this is about small business, this is about the little guy, you know, and what is a small business, right? Because, you know, why does business have to be small, you know, in order for it to be deserving of, of, uh, of, a, of, a, of a tax break? Because, you know, small business, what is that? Just a mom and pop, you know, one man, you know, a guy owns a, you know, a dry cleaner. You know, is that what the small business is? Because if you employ, employ 50 or 100 people, are you still a small business? Because chances are, if you employ 50 or 100 people, that's small in the scheme of things. And, but the guy that runs that business probably makes a few hundred thousand or a million or two a year, right? Obviously, you know, he still has a high income, but he's doing a lot of good. He's creating a lot of jobs. He's providing goods or services. Why do you want to exempt that guy from the supposed tax relief for small business and just reserve it to a guy that makes fifty, seventy-five thousand dollars 75000 because he's got, you know, a little uh, quickie mart or something and has maybe two or three employees, Right. I mean, is that the only guy that wants to get a break? But it seems like they're going to have to backtrack to try to make sure that nobody who has a relatively high income is going to see any kind of tax relief at all from this plan. Of course, you know, one of the problems that you're going to have, too, is in these states, if they actually pass this plan, because you can't deduct your state income tax or your state property tax, and that is going to increase the incentive on people to move out of the high tax states into the lower no tax states because now the net cost of your local taxes is much higher. so in other words, it's like these states like Connecticut New York New Jersey, California just dramatically increase their taxes because if you can no longer deduct your state tax from your federal tax, that is an effective tax hike at the state level and that increases the reward. To moving out of state and i mentioned this before on an earlier podcast even the very first income tax the one that we had during the civil war which is the basis for the one that we had now even though the civil war income tax ended when the war ended but it's that income tax that the income tax of 1896 that was originally declared unconstitutional that was resurrected in 1913 that tax was based on the civil war tax and even the civil war tax when they taxed your income they said, well, we're not going to tax the income that was already taxed by the state because, you know, we're going to respect the sovereignty of the state and we're not going to tax you on money that you don't have. If the state took tax your income, we're just going to tax what you have left. We're not going to presume to tax the money that you already sent to the state. So that's been a principle that's been uh, around, uh, you know, since the beginning. Oh, and by the way, that's where we got the, uh, the principle of taxing your worldwide income. It was during the Civil War. And the reason was there were a lot of people who were dodging the draft. There were a lot of Northerners who didn't want to get, you know, so they left the country. They went up to Canada. And so when they passed that income tax, they wanted to make sure that the Americans who dodged the draft by moving to Canada still had to pay the income tax. So that's why we had this worldwide system where we were going to tax you no matter where you were, because we were trying to tax the guys who went to Canada. And we were saying, look, you may be able to avoid the draft but you're not going to avoid the income tax. And of course, that provision carried on uh, to the later income tax, which is the thing that is so unique uh, about America is we're the only real country. There's one small country, I forget the name of it, but all the other countries don't do that. If you leave the country and earn money, they don't tax you. America is the only country that says we're going to tax you. If you leave the country, we still want to tax you. And again, that, that's why it has the the origin in that in that civil war so by changing this and now for the first time uh trying to basically tax income that you didn't even receive the government is breaking with that tradition but my point is that's going to simply turn up the pressure on these high-tax states because more and more of their higher income earners are now going to have an even greater financial incentive to get out to go to a state that that has no income tax or lower property taxes. well i want to uh finish up this podcast i want to talk about the announcement that came from gold money because i have noticed you know i i put that uh that note up there and there, you know, a lot of the people in the crypto community somehow think aha you know this announcement means that you know i'm i'm changing my mind I'm, I'm caving in i'm you know i'm now advocating bitcoin or ethereum or cryptocurrencies in general i'm not what the news is if you haven't heard it or read about it is gold money which is the Toronto based company, which is basically my partner because I sold them shift gold. So shift gold is now owned by gold money as the physical arm of that Canadian company. And gold money, as you all know, provides a platform where you can buy gold, store it, and you have access to that gold. You can spend it. You can use it to buy goods and services. You can just gift it to other people. You get a free debit card, which you can then use to sell your gold and spend the proceeds using your debit card anywhere they accept, you know, MasterCard Visa. That's the basic premise of Gold Money. Well, what Gold Money just announced was that now they are going to also provide custody for Bitcoin and for Ethereum. And the reason they did that is because they have a demand. There are institutions, there are hedge funds that want to take a position in Bitcoin, right? Despite the fact that I say it's a bubble and the fact that I think it's ultimately going to collapse, there are plenty of people who disagree with me. And there is some speculative money that wants to get in on the action. But they they are worried about where to buy it and where to store it. They want to make sure that it's not hacked, that they don't have any theft. And they also have concerns about anti-money laundering and they have to have the right custodian. And so what gold money is going to do is provide really the first platform that you can use to have a fully audited public company that's going to store and insure uh, your cryptocurrency and also do all the AML compliance to appease the regulators. And so now if an institution wants to buy and have Bitcoin held, obviously the institution is not going to try to use it in commerce. They don't want Bitcoin because they want to use it as a medium of exchange. They purely want to speculate on the appreciation. And so they need the right type of custodian. Uh, Gold money is now providing uh, that service. And of course, they will provide it at a profit. They're going to be able to make money uh, on the spreads. They're going to be buying and selling these cryptocurrencies. And there is going to be a storage fee. But I think the storage fee that they're going to charge is going to be less than what a Bitcoin ETF would have charged so i think it's going to be a safer more convenient way for institutions to get in on cryptocurrencies rather than waiting for the launch of some kind of etf so you don't even need the etf you've already got this relationship and in fact it's possible that down the line working with other broker dealers or clearing firms that gold money will be able to position broker dealers like fidelity or schwab that their customers will be able to buy Bitcoin and have it appear on their brokerage account statement, you know, on the same statement that they, you know, they have their IBM or their, you know, whatever they buy, they can just be there as another asset on their broker statement. So what, what they're doing, obviously, is making it a lot easier for institutions or investors to speculate in cryptocurrencies. Now, is it possible that what gold money is doing may feed the mania and made the bubble get a little bigger as a result of the fact that uh, this access is being made available Possibly that could easily happen But what also means is if it help if, if gold money is helping institutions get in They're helping a lot of the small investors who got in a long time ago get out And so if you can read between the lines or not really between the lines I think you got a gift horse here And I think you can thank me later because I think to the extent that we do enable more buying of institutions then obviously the institutions can't buy what somebody else doesn't sell. And I think the smart money is going to sell. And what I do hope happens as a result of what gold money is doing is to the extent that more investors utilize the gold money platform to buy their cryptocurrencies, that some of these investors may buy gold for the first time. And some of these investors may divert some of their crypto profits into gold. And then, of course, I think when this bubble comes bursting, and all the people look to run for the hills and dump their cryptos, then obviously we have a captive uh, group of sellers that may in fact decide to sell their cryptos and buy gold or buy silver. So all of that would, of course, benefit uh, gold money. The interesting thing too about gold money, obviously you know, gold money is a publicly traded stock. I'm really not allowed uh, to recommend stocks, nor am I recommending uh, gold money. But I'm just pointing out the fact that obviously investors like the news Uh, they bid up the price of the stock, I think about 20% since yesterday when the news was announced, the stock did hit a 52 week high today on that news. So obviously there are investors who are looking for a publicly traded vehicle in order to have a play on cryptocurrencies. And obviously I think this is the only one they're going to be the only publicly traded digital currency exchange, digital currency custodian. So I think whether, uh, Bitcoin ultimately collapses or not, right? They have exposure to the mania as long as it lasts. It's kind of like you know, you know, they're not the prospectors in the gold rush, but they're selling, you know, they're selling the picks, they're selling the pans, they're selling all the equipment that everybody needs, right? So they are going to make money off of the the Bitcoin bubble. Obviously, the bigger the bubble gets, the more money they're going to make, but they don't stand to lose. If the bubble bursts, other than the fact that they lose potential future revenue when it comes to um, uh, transactions or when it comes to custodial fees, although to the extent that Bitcoin customers can ultimately become gold customers, if people who were attracted to gold money because they wanted to buy Bitcoin, uh, if that thing collapses and now you know they decide they want to buy gold, well then that's great. So to me, I think it it places gold money in a great position as a business because if the bitcoin bubble keeps growing they're going to make a lot of money off of it right i mean now a lot of people thought well if people are buying bitcoin then that's not good for gold money because you know bitcoin or Ethereum are competing well in this case it doesn't matter because if they want to buy a bunch of bitcoin they want to trade a bunch of bitcoin gold money is going to make money there and if the bubble bursts and as a result of the bubble bursting we have more demand for gold well then they're going to make money there too so i i think it's a good Business move for them to kind of fill this niche, to kind of see a need in the market and to try to uh, provide a solution, to try to to supply what the market is demanding. But it is not an endorsement. It is not that, you know, Peter Schiff is telling people, hey, go out and buy uh, Bitcoin any more than if I opened up a casino in Las Vegas, I would be telling people, hey, go to the casino because you're guaranteed to make money. I mean, I would know that you're going to lose money at the casino. I would just assume that you lose it at my casino as opposed to a competitor's casino. And of course, you know, casinos can give you better odds, right? You know, some casinos, you'll lose less money because maybe they'll, you know, they, you know the, the slots are looser, right? Maybe they, they give you a little bit of a better edge, uh, at, at the way the odds are rigged. So yeah, there are some casinos that are going to be that where you're going to lose more money than others, but obviously you're going to lose money and the casino is going to make money. And that's what I think is going to happen. I think that the gold money is going to book everybody's bets and they're going to, they're going to make money. They're going to take a vig. uh, they're going to make some money. Uh, and, but you know, who knows? And of course, if I'm wrong, right? If all the, the members of the crypto cult, if they're the ones that are right and I'm wrong, Okay, so I don't make any money owning Bitcoin, but I make money as a stockholder in, uh, in gold money. And again, just by the way, you know, I'm not recommending, obviously it's a public traded stock. I'm not recommending that anybody go out and actually buy the stock uh, um, just because I own it. But that is a disclosure. It is a stock that I personally own. But, you know, anybody who does want to talk about it, you know, call up uh, one of my stockbrokers at, uh, at Europe Pacific Capital and And talk about the risks uh, of the of, of stocks or any stocks, and find out whether investing in something like this, which is clearly a speculative company, find out if this is something that is suitable for you and before you would consider investing in it, make sure you understand what the risks are. Make sure you understand that like any company, it could ultimately go bankrupt if its business model fails, and you know the stock could drop and you could lose money so you know, make sure that you're willing to lose money before you invest. But personally, I think if if it was up to me and it's like, well, should I buy Bitcoin or should I buy a publicly traded company that makes money off of Bitcoin? To me, I think there's more upside in the company that profits from the trading than in the cryptocurrency itself. Now, obviously, you got these people who say, oh, Bitcoin is going to be a million. Well, you know, maybe in that case, there's more upside in Bitcoin, but... I think if Bitcoin does go to a million, obviously gold money is going to make a tremendous amount of money in storage fees and in transaction fees. But even if Bitcoin just doubles or triples, I think that that means there's a lot more upside for a company that is servicing the the growing uh, crypto industry. And as far as the downside risk, hey, you know, these cryptocurrencies could go to zero or close to it. Uh, I don't think that gold money goes to zero, even if the cryptos go to zero, because it still has another business. In fact, I think that gold money's business, when it comes to gold and using gold as digital money, I think that business is actually worth more in an environment where the cryptos go to zero. So to me, it's kind of a win-win. But again, I'm not making any kind of recommendations. I just want to talk about what's going on, kind of address uh, the comments that are being made. But to the extent that anybody does want to consider an investment, talk to your broker, get a you know read about the company, learn about the company, study it, understand all the risks, and then make your own decision whether or not you feel the risk is worth the potential reward, or you know more specifically, talk to my brokers because they know something about the company and they can help you uh, with a better assessment and Of course, again, we've got the fourth quarter coming up. Brand new start next week. I think this could be the best quarter that we've had, and um, you know, so if you if you don't have an account, set one up. If you have an account, add to it, right, and enjoy the gains of the fourth quarter. Don't wait till they're over. Don't wait till they're in the history books. I think that you know the dollar could be particularly weak in the waning months of uh, 2017. I think the gold price could finally break out. As the year comes to an end, I think there's a lot of, you know, a return that is just kind of uh, built up in here that I think could really explode at the end of the year. And my guess would be position yourself ahead of that, right? You want to catch this wave. You don't want to be crushed by it.